This is how we overcome We're moving out Keep us up Reaching to the world Arms open Arms open Yeah This is how we practice Great Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Erica. And I'm Sarah. So friends, we are in uh, the midst of a short series that we've been doing here between um, Christmas and Epiphany and Lent, where we've been talking about books that have influenced our theology outside of the Bible. Um, and so we, we talked a couple weeks ago, I, I talked about a book called The Bible Told Them So. that talks about the racism that was found in a couple of different denominations, including my own. Um, back during the civil rights period. Last week, we talked about resident aliens with Steve. So Sarah, what's your book that you're going to bring to us this week? So my book is a fairly recent book that I have read. I think I read it about a year, year and a half ago. And it is called Part-Time is Plenty, Thriving Without Full-Time Clergy by G. Jeffrey McDonald. And this is a book that has been really popular in my synod as we start looking at what does it look like for a congregation to have ministry that's thriving um, that doesn't have full-time clergy, like less than full-time. And this could be in a variety of different arrangements about whether or not they are partnered with another congregation to support a full-time clergy person between the two of them, or possibly somebody who is working three-quarter time or half-time while also working at a secular job or raising children or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, so this has been the book that has started a lot of conversation about what could this look like? What has to change in our ministry, our day-to-day -day ministry, in order to have a thriving ministry that doesn't have a full-time pastor? Can I ask, uh, the the way you describe the, the title or the subtitle of the book, it sounds like that part-time is plenty is aimed at or sort of speaking to for a congregation to say, hey, for you as a congregation, like you can make this work. Is is this written more uh, toward to speak to congregations thinking about how they reconfigure their ministry? Is it written to a person who's a pastor thinking about what they're supposed to do or all of the above? So it's mostly written with the idea of uh, lay people in the congregation to read it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not necessarily a how-to for pastors to okay. like scale back or anything. Yeah. Um, but I, I would almost even argue that it's even a good denominational book, like oh, okay. a good, a good entry point for even like you know. So if you think about the hierarchy of the church, at least in the Lutheran Church, right? Like there is. On the bottom is congregations, and then there's synod, and then there's churchwide. So mm -hmm. I think it's a really good way for synods or churchwide even to start rethinking and reframing their brains about what it means to do ministry in this changing environment where there's now lots of congregations that can't afford full-time clergy on their own. Like, what could this look like? Um, because... Uh, I think in the introduction of this book, he taught the author talks about how when he started researching for this book, he was calling synods and um, the equivalent of synods and other denominations to ask, hey, I would like to talk to some congregations and pastors who are thriving with less than full time pastors. And several 
phone calls ended with that synodical person saying, we don't have that. If you have less than full-time clergy, you're not thriving. Mm. Hang up. And so I think it's really important for like the the top part of the church, you know, church-wide and synodical to start thinking differently about just because a congregation can't afford a full-time pastor doesn't mean that they aren't thriving, that they aren't doing God's mission in the world, that they aren't doing what God is calling them to do at this time and place. It's just not going to look necessarily the same as it did 40, 50 years ago. Um, so I think I think it's a good book all around mm-hmm. to, to read. Um, but it's not written to pastors to like, oh, this is how you should reframe right. your ministry. Right. Um, with the exception of, I think that this book does a really good job of taking a look at roles in the congregation. Hmm, okay. So like, what are you asking your pastor to do? What belongs to the pastor and only the pastor? And what can belong to the congregation? And who's doing what? Mm-hmm. Um, like, because especially if you're serving in a congregation who cannot afford full-time clergy, so a clergy person who is working 40 hours a week, you can't expect that pastor to do all of the things that a 40 hour a week person could do, right? There just isn't enough hours. It's not sustainable. You're going to have a burnt out clergy person. So what that the pastor typically does, can the congregation do? Like, who do you have in your congregation who has those gifts and skills that might be able to do some pastoral care? who might be able to do some preaching once a month to take that off the clergy person's plate so that they have time to do other things. Who do you have who's really gifted at teaching confirmation? You know, it's it's starting those conversations about who's doing what so that your pastor can focus on the things that your pastor is called to do amongst you. You know, it, it's funny as you describe this, it sounds like part of the, the conversation uh, in in at least the topic, if I don't know if they direct, address this directly in the book, but like that American church life in the 21st century is doing a lot of reckoning with things don't feel the same as they did 30 years ago or 60 years ago. And that maybe there's a recognition that that paradigm that people remember from an earlier generation wasn't the norm and isn't how things have always been and sort of coming to terms with Oh, right. So just because this is what is in my childhood or my recollection isn't the certainly it's certainly not the biblical. There's the one model for church to look, um, but also that there's a variety of ways of making things look and that we shouldn't necessarily see the present moment as we're failing at being church because it's not what I remember, you know, in my childhood or my grandparents remember. Um, but that variety of it's always looked different in different places. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask, like, if if you get the impression from this book that they treat the situations of uh, part-time ministry, d- does the perspective of the book sort of see that as, well, I guess you can make do like you're settling, but it's here's how you can make it work, or more like, no, there are ways where you might intentionally choose, or like this could be a, a healthier situation than having somebody who is full-time. Are there, are there uh, advantages that are just sheer positives uh, as the, the book talks about it? Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, the 
what what I really like about this book is that it's not a recipe book in the sense that this is how you go about and do this. Mm -hmm. It's very much your situation is contextual to you. So what works for one person in one congregation isn't going to work for you. That being said, here are some success stories and Mm -hmm. use these as inspiration to think through your situation. Mm -hmm. So like one of the success stories that really stood out to me is that one congregation had like one or two members who is privileged enough to be able to afford a seminary education. So they, in their early, like they were able to take early retirement and went to seminary and got ordained Mm -hmm. and then served their congregation for free in their retirement. Mm -hmm. And they did it in a like less than full-time basis, but there were several of them so that they were able to like kind of rotate amongst themselves. And you know, I, I just kept thinking like, what a gift, like this congregation was able to raise up leaders and took the denominational system of like how you train, uh, train pastors mm-hmm. and sent them to that training. They played within the rules and got ordained. And so like, then they were pastors able to do all the things that pastors could do. Mm-hmm. Then they were able and privileged enough to not take monetary payment mm. for doing those things. Like mm-hmm. that's a gift. Yeah. That gift I think is rare. Like yeah. seminary education is not cheap mm-hmm. and living is not cheap. And so like that, that, that story in particular, in particular, I just kept thinking that's a gift that those like couple of people were able to give their congregation but I also have concerns about the longevity of that because now Mm -hmm. this congregation is not used to paying a salary for a pastor Mm -hmm. in any way. Mm -hmm. What happens when these one or two people have to fully retire and can no longer give this gift? What then happens to this congregation? I don't know because I'm not sure that that has actually happened in real life yet because this book is not this that old, but like, it's a concern that I had. Sure. And um, it, one, of, one of the things that calls to mind is, as you talk about the importance of contextuality, that what works in one place doesn't necessarily work in another. That's also in time as well, that what works in one moment won't work a generation later, not mm-hmm. necessarily because of the world changing, but because of the con- the people who are currently serving in the current arrangement aren't there in the future. Uh, yeah, every, you have to rebuild the whole mechanism or figure out a whole new system. And I suppose that's part of why uh, each of us are in traditions that have some kind of denominational structure that are meant to help congregations to continue to thrive when the individual people come and go. How do you make the 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 larger system continue and perpetuate even when people come and go, knowing they'll bring different gifts and abilities mm-hmm. as well as what they can do as far as their time commitment or what they work for, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I know earlier in this series, you had asked me a question about what, what, how do I deal with it when books make me mad? Yeah. And I didn't want to say too much, because I wanted to talk about why this book in particular Mm -hmm. makes me mad. Mm -hmm. Um, Because again, this book is not written to pastors. This book Mm -hmm. is written to congregations. And the thing that they keep lifting up in this book is that it's, it's, 
often better when pastors are bivocational mm-hmm. and have the two different ways to get income. And they like mm-hmm. had several examples of successful bivocational pastors. And mm-hmm. it was often with a career that is pretty lucrative or gives a lot of flexibility. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I read this book a year and a half ago. Um, around the time that I was like starting to experience extreme burnout from mm. trying to juggle three part-time jobs. Yeah. And so reading this book made me so angry because it made me feel so guilty because I was coming to the realization that I can't do this sustainably. Yeah. I can't stretch myself so thin by being less than full time. Like I couldn't do it financially. I couldn't do it energy wise. Like I just, I just couldn't do it. And I was coming up to this realization. And then I was also reading this book saying, Mm -hmm. Hey, it's better for everyone. It's better for the congregation. It's better for the pastor by vocational pastors. That's, that's the way of the future. And I was just kind of like, man, that's, Mm -hmm. that's rough. Um, I don't think I can be by vocation. Like, I don't feel like God is calling me to anything else. Cause to me, a vocation is a calling. Yeah. It's not just another job. Like, I think that should be another word, like where your work, yeah. like, you know, you know what I mean though? Like yeah. bivocational means you have two different equal callings. Working two different jobs is not necessarily bivocational. That's just working two different jobs to Make meet and yeah. meet. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess I think like, I, I know once you write a book, you're sort of committed to, here's the perspective of the book I'm going to take. And we got to live our lives with the, sort of point counterpoint of like, okay, there can be positives to the bivocational approach. And certainly it could free up a pastor, one, to be able to serve in places where that couldn't afford full-time pastoral ministry. It might also free you up that you don't feel you are beholden, that you can only say things that a majority of your congregation will approve of rather than, nope, here's what God's put on my heart to say, because uh, you've got sort of another source or, or uh, you know, a source of income. But I guess I would imagine too, there's the flip side of, um, there are not a lot of jobs that allow you to drop what you're doing so you can go to the other job to respond to an emergency pastoral call, you know, and mm-hmm. either you have to say to your congregation, sorry, I can't be at the hospital if your emergency happens during my other shift or something, you know, my other, like that. And a congregation has got to be able to say, okay, we can live with that. And again, like you described, it might mean a congregation then raising up other people who will basically take over the, the brunt of the visitation or hospital visits or things like that. And that your ways of connecting with the congregation are going to change then too, because if you can't be there with them necessarily for emergency calls or in the middle of the night or whatever, or, you know, uh, that, that changes the way you relate to them. Yep. In in the year and a half that I've been at my current charge, I oversee four churches, two of which I pastor, two of which my associate pastors, but he is bivocational. Um, and so the majority of the funerals I have done since I've come here have been his mm-hmm. because like, you know, like you said, Steve, you, you can't take off from a nine to five job to do a funeral. And most funerals happen between nine and five Monday through Friday. Right. 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 Um, but then I've, I've talked, I had a conversation several months ago with a brother and colleague of mine who she works as a manager of um, a store and also preaches and was going into a new, um, church for her new call and she was talking about like 
being part-time and like only preaching twice a month because she is part-time, which seems so odd to me because both my former and current denominations, like part-time still means that you're preaching every week. So when I came in here uh, to my current call, um, which is half time, it's 20 hours a week. Um, the synod strongly encouraged that any less than full-time pastors not preach every Sunday. And I said, no, that's silly. <laughs> I am going to preach every week because I feel like that that is my mm-hmm. calling of word and sacrament. Like that's what I'm going to do. Right. Yeah. And now though, I see the wisdom in that and mm-hmm. preaching less than every week, like Because if I had even one Sunday off where I didn't have to give a sermon, you know, I could still be there. I could still leave the service. But if I had a week where I didn't have to do sermon preparation, I would be able to do more pastoral care. I would be able Mm -hmm. to do more educational opportunities for the congregation. I would be able to do more outreach in the community because I would have a week every month where I didn't have to write a sermon. And like all that time would be freed up to do other things that often get pushed off to the side because I have to write a sermon every week, sometimes Mm -hmm. two sermons a week, if I have a funeral or there's a holiday or, you know, whatever. So now I do see the wisdom in less than full-time clergy should not have to preach every week. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can do other things. I see that. It just, it's such a foreign concept to me from my background and the, you know, the colleagues I know that have been part-time, including my associate now, but so many others that were part-time and yet get like four Sundays off a year. Yeah. Just like a full-time pastor. I, I, again, I think it's, it's going to come down to priorities for the congregation. Right. And what do they prioritize more? Because like I'm, I'm preparing to leave my half less than full-time congregation and I have accepted a new call to a full-time congregation um and as I'm preparing to leave I am you know getting ready for my exit interview with the church council where we get to lift up the things that we did well together and the things that we we might have regrets or we we wish we had done better in hindsight and I have a ton of things that I'm like you know, I feel like I didn't do this very well because all of my internal expectations are from a full-time pastor viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And, but yet all of those things that I feel like I've dropped the ball on, they don't. Mm-hmm. And that's because that wasn't where their priorities were for me to do. Mm-hmm. Their priorities were for weekly led worship for mm-hmm. preaching mm-hmm. So like, yeah, well, I kind of go, man, I really wish I had in the beginning said I'll preach three out of four Sundays. That way I have a week to really focus on X, Y, and Z. They're all like, but we didn't want you to do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. We wanted you to preach and you did. So again, I think it's priorities and it's a constant checking in with each other to make sure that expectations are being met and that the expectations are realistic, both Mm -hmm the expectations from the pastor about what the pastor expects themselves to do and the congregation's expectations. Yeah. As we're having this whole conversation here, 20 centuries into this thing called Christianity, we've definitely seen the church become an institution and 
have to figure out those things like how does an institution continue and you know make sure its employees aren't burned out and that structures continue and all that. But as, as we're having this conversation, it makes me think about um, how refreshingly different the the conversations would have been in the first century, like in one of Paul's letters where they had not developed pastor as like a job, but more like we were a community and meeting in somebody's house and that all the roles were shared in a different way because, and, and like they're like to read Paul talking about the church as a body, he's very concerned about what we might call burnout now, but it's like, you know, nobody does it all. We all contribute. And it's almost like there's something that is more biblically, rooted in that sort of part-time model that doesn't form it out to here will be our one professional and everybody else are volunteer committee members who are also critiques because they're dues paying members and they'll you know tell the pastor where they are aren't doing a good job but the model in the early church is such a different uh way of, of living together you know that uh the mm -hmm. things that needed to get done nobody's doing this because they're getting paid nobody's getting paid and whatever income they received as a congregation was how do we immediately pay this out to give to the widows who are hungry or feet like it was such a completely different way of life and on top of that you got like paul who's a tent maker you know who has a day job and would do his day job work while also you know, being a traveling missionary um that maybe this whole conversation forces people who are used to full-time ministry as a model to go, wait a second, that that kind of has, has uh, skewed even the way you read the New Testament, because the early church didn't function with religious professionals who were paid as their job, but uh, had an entirely different way of thinking about things. And maybe even just stopping and, oh yeah, what I assumed was normal was not how the early church began. That is actually chapter one of this book. Oh, really? Interesting. <laughs> yep. Goodbye to bias, stigma, and idols. Recovering ministry as it's been done through the ages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So good and job, I, Steve. Okay, <laughs> excellent. Good. Well, I mean, like, but like, I think that that sometimes is the hang-up for people when when a congregation is going through that wrestling of uh you know, what, what can we afford? What does ministry look like for us in this, you know, next season of life or whatever? And if all anybody can remember is, well, you know, we paid a person or multiple people and that's their full-time job and they're at our beck and call. Um, and if that's all anybody can remember, then the, the assumption is, well, that's how it's always been. And that seems to be like, there's this, there's this bias of short-term history memory, you know, like we can only remember back to our own lifetimes by definition, but being able to, keep longer memory to go, you know, it's really looked like a bunch of different things over time. And so pick and choose based on what works for where you're at. Sometimes I think we don't think we have the freedom to do that because so often we treat the church like, no, we're the people who pass on tradition of how it's always been, forgetting there isn't really a how it's always been. Yeah. Bring back the circuit riders. Yeah. And again, like recognizing every Sunday. each of those models brings liabilities mm -hmm. and assets to it right so i think maybe that's that's the the other piece for um for any of us or for people who are listening who aren't wrestling with a particular question of part-time ministry full-time ministry in their congregation but that question of whatever arrangement that a congregation chooses or works with is is going to have both strengths and weaknesses and you got to be attent attentive to that rather than thinking okay there's one right choice that will be only upside for us and no downside there are obvious downsides or or things you're going to have to deal with in part-time ministry there's always going to be challenges to full-time ministry both for the congregation and for the the pastor as well so it's more being attentive to the the upsides and downsides of whatever model you you're working with so anyway, this book did make me angry, um, but that's because I didn't really want to be told to be bivocational. 
but I do think it's a really good book. Um, whether congregations are looking at being less than full-time supporting a less than full-time pastor, or even if the, you know, you are able and still want to support a full-time pastor, because I think it's a really nice conversation starter about mm -hmm. who does what in the congregation and why. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's a good place to start looking at roles in the congregation. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your sharing this with us for us to consider how our ministries might be affected by those kind of conversations, too. Next time, we're going to have one more conversation in this kind of series about books that have been important, but we're going to treat it like a catch-all of honorable mentions. And so you're going to get to hear us taking a look at a whole variety of other things that maybe weren't our featured book, but other titles that you might want to listen for. So join us next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See you all. Bye.